There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. I gotta get all up and something, cause something's all up inside of me. What's happening, all my woods people? It is spring. The birds are beeping. The bees are buzzing. (laughs) The grass is popping and it's greening. Uh, Casey, what else is happening this spring? The vetch is growing up the chain link. <laughs> That's what I was kind of looking at. <laughs> These birds are going crazy up in the stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's time to fish. We've actually done some fishing. Yeah, we did fishing yesterday. It's good stuff, man. Um, we got away in the afternoon on a beautiful sunny day, which it's not today. I'm surprised. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a little cloudy, but, um, and got to go chase, uh, some of the scaly friends that we have. Yeah. Yeah. These... Man, I hate to get off subject, but these feathered friends over here, <laughs> I kind of been thinking about the, the whole time. Yeah, that we've been sitting here, I'm like looking at them and I'm like, they're picking up, there's a ton of trash over here, you know, from in this parking lot. And I'm like looking at them and I'm thinking, they keep pulling the trash out and like flying off to their nest. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe trash isn't all bad. <laughs> you know, like maybe, maybe there's some Sparrow use. nests usually are made of Bale and twine, yeah, more than anything, yeah. it seems like. So, so I don't know. I, I just maybe it's not the trash that's not bad, but it's the bird that's resourceful. You know well, what I mean? you know those birds you're looking at are a non-native invasive. So, are you talking about the house finches? No, are you looking at a house finch right now? I was. Uh, that's what I've seen I've a been lot seeing of. Seeing these European starlings. Yeah. Oh, the sparrows. Oh, yeah, there's European starlings out there too. Yeah, I saw the starlings yeah. earlier. Yeah. So, anyway, cool. so we yeah we went fishing yesterday and uh, it was fun. It was fun. It could have yeah. been better, I think, uh, for me at least. We we think <laughs> that possibly the first time we went to this place was as good as it ever gets. 
And so we got super spoiled and fooled by like that aspect, yep. right? So uh, from here on out, unless we hit it just perfect again, it's never going to be as good as the first time when we lucked into it. What is it about us and like firsts? Like, um, for instance, two of the fish we caught yesterday were like right off the bat. Yeah. And then um, we do that a lot. Like we'll catch something right off the bat and then nothing will bite forever. We did that. Mm-hmm. I went crappie fishing the other day and we caught uh, fish. I mean, when we got to the spot we wanted to fish, it was like right off the bat, first cast, got a crappie in the boat. This is about to be awesome. Mm-hmm. And then we fish all afternoon and catch four. You know, yeah. and it's like, what? I don't I understand. Fishing's that way a lot in general, man. Yeah. Like, that's how it was when we went crappie fishing the other day to an extent. It was my dad hammered three off the same stump in the first 10 minutes. And then after that, it was like a grind trying to mm-hmm. pull another crappie in. I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway. I don't know. Yeah, we, we uh, you caught some stripers, man. That I was did. cool. It was cool. None of them were real big ones. Um, there were guys around us catching a few big ones, but they were fishing different techniques than we were. And yeah, much different. Somewhat uh, intrusive to our fishing, but it's a, sometimes it's just combat fishing, man. It was. Whenever you're on the bank, people congregate at uh, spillways and stuff like that. Like People are going to just push their limits with you especially when there's a language barrier they feel like they can get away with more i think maybe Mm. we do too i don't know yeah but uh anyways yeah it definitely i told you yesterday but i feel like maybe because there's more people that have done this or i think it's definitely one reason but you know people have there's a lot of people i guess that have especially in the northwest do steelhead fishing right Mm -hmm. and they talk about it's the fish of a thousand casts or whatever and I feel like that these stripers are the fish of a thousand casts. At least a big one, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I've caught some smaller ones, but like, yeah, like something like a, you know, a eight or ten pounder plus, you know what I mean? And I have I have made a thousand casts in this spot, at least, yeah. and I have not caught one. And you've caught one of that size, right? It was the first time. Yeah, it was the first time. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, first like, time I ever went. And it is combative. And, you know, like I had to, these guys are casting big surf rod type deals, like big cork and, and jig or whatever they've got underneath it. And it, they're going, they're throwing, how far are they throwing? They're 75 yards? At least, if I not mean, further, yeah. yeah I think one time, we like, that guy was yelling at a guy across the river. I think they were hooked up. I think a guy across the river and this guy were like hooked up with each this other. Is a and giant up. river. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they were throwing it way out there, and so like what they do is they fish this thing downstream really far and like let it swing, and then when it gets down at like you know a forty-five or whatever, they just start reeling it and they reel it all the way in, which takes two minutes, you know, or whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. like they're reeling fast, and it takes like a good you know sixty seconds mm-hmm. for real though, and. As a fly fisherman, like, we're covering, like, the first, like, we're covering, like, 15 yards of from the bank, you know. And so, like, I'm not being very intrusive, I don't feel like. But this guy, I guess with, you know, we are being intrusive in, in our tactic, maybe, I guess, because it's different than what's the norm there. But basically, when this guy, like, after his first half of his drift, I can't really cast back up river because mm-hmm. his line is angled down towards me. The whole time. And so, like, like maybe 40% or less of my casts are actually, like, I feel like in the zone for fish. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, this, I've got a good analogy for this. Sometimes right. I have analogies that don't make sense. This one's going to make sense. <laughs> okay. 
You know when you're driving in Dallas traffic and, like, you're trying to figure out the whole scheme of things and you're getting comfortable in the traffic, you know, and you're like, okay, that's a safe distance from this truck. You know, I'm going to stay back off this 18 wheeler this far. And, like, everybody's cool. And then somebody goes right in front of you because their safe distance is half of what you think yep. it is. That's how this fishing is. Because, like, yeah. you find your little hole. Like, oh, there's a guy over there. And there's a guy over here. And we can yeah. all fish happily. And then, like, two or three people come in between you in the gaps. Yeah. Like, well, dude, come it. Yeah. How about that first guy? The, the first time we fished the river there yesterday. You oh, he the was guy trying to stand on Tyler's shoes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like... I, I literally had my KC caught a fish, right? So I go grab the camera. My rod is sitting right there all with line everywhere, you know, sitting right there where I was just at. I go video him with the fish. And, I mean, it hadn't been two minutes, three minutes or whatever. I'm, I get him, you know, with the fish. And this guy, like, as we're, like, videoing this fish being about to be released, like, hops in right beside my rod there. And I'm like, what the heck? So I just go back to my rod and start fishing, and he has no qualms about it, like no <laughs> issue. He doesn't he doesn't nudge down at all or anything, you know. And so we just fish like 15 feet apart, you know what I mean? Like I could, I mean, I was like, if this thing hooks him, because it was real windy, I was like, ain't my fault. I ain't going to feel bad about it one bit. <laughs> I'm just going back cast, and if he's there, that's what He'll happens. Learn. That's right. So, well, after that little experience, we, we decided to go maybe hunt some different quarry yeah. and do a little bit of a, really, it's sight fishing. Mm-hmm. Spot and stalk, you could say. Ooh, spotty and stalky. And Tyler, uh, actually, was it was a really cool catch. Like, this carp was, like, really down deep. And Tyler has these little special beetle patterns that he <laughs> lost one in the wind and yep. finally had another one left. Yep. And uh, I actually was like spotting from afar for Tyler mm-hmm. and he didn't even know that fish was there. Spotted the fish, he cast to it and like laid it in there perfect. <laughs> and this fish like comes up. KC from- was like, here he's coming up. And I'm like looking at him, I can start to see him, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe. Maybe he's just, like, coming under my bait so now I can see him, you know. Mm. It literally was the slowest rise oh ever. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I remember thinking when this fish rose on the fly, I'm like, Tyler's going to miss this fish. Not because you're bad at this, but I knew, like, that was so slow, he's going to set too early. And you didn't. <laughs> I, I was didn't. so so proud of you when it happened. Cause I, but I just knew. It was like, man, that's a slow rise. He's going to set too early. It's going to happen. And it didn't. It worked. And uh, Tyler landed him a nice little carp there. Yeah, it was and, a... One of the smaller grass carp we've seen. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, but it, <laughs> it was, was cool. It, it was, was you know, he's probably seven pounds or so. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was, you know, we've seen some. I this beetle pattern I created, uh, and I uh, based off of another pattern that I had seen, and I, I guess it, maybe last summer, maybe the summer before, um, I had been out there by myself in this area and seen a big grass carp, like a thirty pounder. Uh, out there and I laid this beetle out in front of him and he came up and did the same thing slow sip I set the hook and this thing was so huge that I just basically broke the broke on the hook set yesterday or uh, that that time and that's one thing we have an issue with is like with so many rocks and concrete around like you're gonna have a frayed line you know Mm -hmm. but anyway yeah it is it is a spot and stalk kind of fishing out there and speaking of spot and stalk we (laughs) are talking 
to a guy about spot and stalk type of hunting today. Trevin Stoltzfus. Did I say that right? You said it right. Okay. Yeah, a little bit more. So Trevin's name is a lot harder when you have an East Texas draw because you slow it down, you know? Yeah. Stoltzfus. Stoltzfus. And the, the faster you say it, the more the better it sounds. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, yeah, Trevin's It's with, German, though, right? Yeah. Which is Texas, which is a, which is a Texan thing. So. German is Texas. It's, yeah, German, German is a Texan thing. You know yeah, I mean? for sure. Lots of Germans around. Um, but, uh, anyways, Trevin is with Outback Outdoors mm-hmm. and the Inspired Wild podcast and a plethora of other things. Yep. Had a film in, well, and a lot of different film festivals too, but, um, most recently in the Badlands Film Festival that, uh, is showcased at the ATA show. A really cool film, a lot different than his normal stuff. It was, uh, a film called Adopted, kind of his story with his relationship with his dad. Pretty, pretty cool yeah. little film. And then, um. They do a lot of hunting from the ground, right? Yeah. Like most of their stuff is what you would call spot and stalk style hunting, and of mm. course they're they're doing some elk calling and and uh, they do some eastern whitetail type stuff every once in a while too. But I think that uh, that is something that we don't do much with eastern style hunting, and I mm. think that we we probably shouldn't do it as much as they do. But I don't think that we should write it off as a tactic, mm-hmm. you know, because you talking know. about in eastern in, style in the hunting. Eastern style, in, the, in the east, right? Yeah. So east of the plains, you know, uh, I think anywhere there's trees, we usually ride off the whole, like, spot and stalk from mm-hmm. the ground. But how many times have we seen deer, you know, walking in on an afternoon that don't know you're there yet? Mm-hmm. It happens often enough, right? And I think that, like, we can learn some stuff, maybe even not uh, – to quite spot and stalk with just some tactics and some some st- uh, like style of what they do that can help us as whitetail hunters. Yeah, for sure. I I agree with you. I mean, I think I think there is opportunity um, to do that in in these settings. And I don't know. I, I've I have stalked a few. I've shot a few deer from the ground. Stalked mm-hmm. a buck. I guess I can I can remember at least one that I've shot uh, that I stalked and. I, you know, I, I used to, out there at the lodge, I used to stalk ducks every single day. And I think that just like my, my, um, confidence in the game of stalking is pretty high, even though I don't do it for whitetails much. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I should like play to that strength a little more, you know, Possibly. In, in some of these situations, but it, uh, it is tough. I know when you're videoing stuff to make good video happen especially if you don't have a crew like trevin has Mm -hmm. uh to make a good video when you're stalking oh Uh, yeah we had we had uh to use a lot of gopro and uh just handheld shaky footage last year on our stalk um, Mm -hmm. on those bucks so um but that's just the way it goes but Yeah. yeah anyway so um one thing that we didn't we did a little bit of stalking uh, but we really didn't get any footage from the stock was turkey hunting recently. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really excited to announce that our turkey film has finally dropped and it is available to be watched on YouTube. Um, film called hooked. And the film's called hooked and, uh, man, I'm super proud of it. It is like, I don't, I don't know. We've been trying to develop our style, um, and there are different, there are different types of hunting and and hunts and different seasons and stuff that we're going to use different styles, right? Anyway, it doesn't. It's not just like we're going to have one style, but this is like from a film perspective, from an art perspective. This is what kind of what I think we're falling into, and we're trying to 
develop this as being like something that you would see and think that's those guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even if you didn't see our faces. And so uh, I'm really proud of it from an art perspective. And I, I uh, we we did some really really fun things uh, with it and we had some really just beautiful shots. I mean, that's just like part of spring, right? It's just like your footage is can be beautiful during whitetail season, but it's going to be brown. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, sure. And this just has so much color to mm-hmm. it. It's so, vibrant. You it know, is. That's, that's just really the kind of one of the takeaways is that it's – the world seems so alive oh, yeah. in turkey season. I know, man. It's cool. I know. That's why fishing and turkey hunting are an exciting thing, I think, man. It's just like things are waking up, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I think it's uh, probably time to get some stalking information because I'm looking forward to attempting a lot of this next year as we did this year. Ooh, yes, let's do it. Anyway, let's get him on the phone. All right, so now on the phone we have Trevin Stoltzfus of Outback Outdoors and Inspired Wild Podcast. Trevin, did I say it right? You did. You All did. Right. You, did a, you did a fine job. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Good job, man. Man, I love I I love people when people give me compliments <laughs> like that. I don't get those anymore. I used to have to work really hard for those when I played football, you know, and and get them here and there. And so it feels good, man. Thanks. <laughs> well, that's saying something. You're in Texas. Playing football in Texas is like no other place on earth. That's right, man. <laughs> that's right. Now, did you grow up pretty close here to Texas, or where where did you grow up? I was born in Texas. Okay. Really? Well, yeah. I was born in El Paso. Yeah, I thought you lot, lived out there. A lot of people think that's more like Mexico than, than Texas. <laughs> it's a little that, bit separate, man. It, it really is. is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, grew, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, so just on the New Mexico yeah. border. From, But I was born in El Paso. I used to live in Stephenville. Oh, all right, um, dude. For quite a while. Yeah. When I was, I rode bulls professionally for about four and a half years and, and I lived in Stephenville. So. All right. Was that, uh, who was it that lived? Was it, uh, Tough that lived down there or, uh, Ty no. or something? Or am yeah, I Ty wrong on all that? Down the st- Ty lived just down the street. Gotcha. I lived with Adam and Gilbert Carrillo. Okay. And, um, you know, Jim Sharp was, I mean, this is, this is 94, 95, 96, that, that time frame. So. Gotcha. Were you a Kurt Cobain fan? Yeah. You know, that was that was the years right there. Like I think he uh died in ninety four, right? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. I, I mean I liked I like Nirvana. Gotcha. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean who didn't who didn't at least dip their toe into the grunge bands? Come on, let's For real. <laughs> For real. I mean, you got Jerry Jeff Walker, you, I mean you got some real good Texas red dirt type, you know stuff going on but then there's all the popular culture and sure. um what was that i saw the sign what was that band um, I saw the sign. yeah and i, I mean, opened you, up my eyes if, i yeah, saw the sign yeah you were living during that time period i mean who didn't like that yeah dude I mean, there, just enough uh yeah marky it's, mark it's yeah, it was uh, musical yeah. you know it was it was oh. it was musical it wasn't like uh i mean there were still instruments and stuff you know yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, dude. I was a grunge junkie. Uh, I didn't know, you know, I knew so, grunge so before. So I will be honest, Pearl Jam, I was much more Eddie Vedder fan than gotcha. I was. Oh, yeah. Bang. I'm an Eddie but, Vedder guy, too, man. Eddie Vedder, he's got one of those top ten voices, man. He's just so good. Yeah. I'm. I'm you're not sure if, if he's really a good singer or, <laughs> you know, because... It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, uh, yeah, yeah. It's extreme control. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an old metal head. I mean, I graduated high school in 1989. Gotcha. Um, so I, I, uh, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a classic Western music, not country. Um, I mean, I'm talking old style Merle Haggard. I mean, old music. Gotcha. I grew up, I, I have fond memories of being on the tractor and the only that uh, we had an AM radio in the tractor and the only station we, that w- it always stayed tuned on was an, a classic country uh, station. And so, you know, Loretta Lynn and, and, Merle Haggard and Johnny, old Johnny Cash, stuff like that. So I grew up listening a lot to that. <clears throat> so I have a, a tremendous respect and love for old classic country, um, which I call Western music, trying to diversify from the pop music that they call country now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one thing I have learned is that if you listen to anything long enough, you can find appreciation for it. Sure, so. man. Absolutely. Yeah. So did you... Did you, were you in Stephenville after high school, I guess? Yeah. Okay. I was. So did you I play, did you play ball in El Paso? You playing football or anything ball? out there? Yeah. Dude, I'm five foot eight, 135 pounds. Dude, I played I, I with was, five foot eights that were beasts, man. I, I no, I wasn't in high, in high school. I graduated high school. I weighed 109 pounds. Yeah. That's it's pretty small. Yeah. yeah. You're like a power lifter. I was a wrestler. Ah. Um, I, uh, so that was my sport and I wrestled, uh, through, of course, junior high, high school on into college. Um, and, uh, my junior year in high school, I got the chance to wrestle in the 1988 Olympic world trials and cool. went to, to Brazil and Argentina, uh, to wrestle their national team stuff. So, cool. um, wrestling was my, was my sport and, and, but I didn't rodeo in high school, uh, because of wrestling and, and I started rodeoing when I walked away from wrestling, like, like literally the weekend after I walked away from wrestling, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to enter the bronc riding. Yeah. And then I, then I started riding bulls and, um, so yeah, so it was, uh, sports that I excelled at were, you know, I did pretty good in soccer, but wrestling was definitely right up my alley, but gotcha. I came from a wrestling family. My, my uncle wrestled for Iowa state. My dad wrestled for university of New Mexico. Wow. So cool man I had a lot of that in the background yeah. that's awesome so pretty driven family pretty driven guy i would say going jumping straight into some rodeo um so what's been going on with you the first quarter of this year or so uh the first quarter's been show seasons um and you know kind of, I, I do a lot of seminars mm-hmm. kind of speaking at different events and now <clears throat> we are in uh well, full swing turkey season. Yeah. So, uh, last last week, I had uh, I, I actually film. I hunt with a lot of young younger individuals, uh, the youth of America. I love yeah. to I love to uh, take uh, kids out um, and film them. Not not that I'm necessarily you know they might be with their dad or, or somebody else, but I just like to film that. Gotcha. <laughs> we forget. We forget as adults that wide-eyed wonder when the sun rises oh, yeah. and the woods come alive. And so I, every time I film a kid, I feel like it takes me back there. So I'm hoping I'm doing the same thing when, when you know, we're producing our shows and, and, uh, and sharing that adventure. I'm hoping we're doing the same thing. So, uh, but I got to do that. Uh, uh, Levi Ray, uh, seven-year-old in, in Missouri, and he's hilarious, uh, and he killed a good Tom. And then my daughter, my daughter was uh, in uh, 
Colorado opener, the opener of Colorado. So, Man, was there snowbirds up there in Colorado this this year? Snow, you mean yeah. uh, snowbirds as it as in <laughs> turkeys in the snow? I feel like every everybody had snow on their opener. It seemed like well, yeah. I thought. Sorry, I I, I think of snowbirds. As <laughs> no, people not that people. Go to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not <laughs> all the, people avoiding the, the snow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, uh, a lot of snow. Nebraska opens March twenty fifth. I think it is. So Ooh. you're you're usually going to get one or two snowstorms if you're hunting turkeys in Nebraska. I I cannot tell you the number of times I've been sitting in a blind and it's been snowing, and I'm just glad to be in a blind so I'm not getting snowed on. Um, in Nebraska, but Colorado, it's a little bit rarer, um, or more, more rare because of the fact that it does start middle of April, but yeah, it, I mean, t- the, the difference is, yeah, it snows, but like today it's going to be 70 degrees. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So, yeah. you know, I mean the, the birds kind of freak out for a day or two, but then they're, but then, you know, uh, it's not like. They get too confused. Yeah, seventy's kind of chilly for us right now. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys at? I mean, what part of Texas? Northeast Texas. So we're eighty miles east of Dallas. Um, so not really what you think about as Texas, right? It's a lot more of like big trees, rolling hills, and uh, and and lakes and creeks, creeks and stuff yeah. like that. So uh, you know, kind of really more if you've been through northern Louisiana, it's a lot in Arkansas, yeah. a lot more like that. Ronnie Kitchens, one of the most craziest bull riders I used to run with, uh, was out of Louisiana. And I, uh, every time I meet somebody from Louisiana, I think of that guy, and I hope he's still alive. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool, man. Yeah, we we live in like a pretty neat cultural area to where, uh, well, we 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 relate a lot of things back to food. So there's a, a pretty heavy. Um, you know, Cajun influence, you know, a lot of crawfish, etouffee, grum, gumbo, people cook that stuff around here. And then you've right. got like the, of course, the German influence, just there's a bunch of Germans in Texas, so a lot of stews and meats and stuff like that. And then, of course, you got the, the Tex-Mex thing going on, so. And, and the, uh, like, stockyard beef thing going on not yeah, far from here, exactly. too, so like that southwestern kind of thing. So um, we, we uh, have a hard time keeping the weight off, I think would be one of the easy <laughs> things to say. <laughs> it's just a good place to grow up and eat. There's not I many think. 109s around here, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you spend a lot of time in that Nebraska country and Kansas and Colorado, New Mexico. Do you feel like you're drawn to hunt in those areas or, or um, kind of what defines you as a hunter in that aspect? If they have a season open. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a tag holder that you're defined as a hunter. <laughs> I, 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 I have to tell me, people ask me, what's your favorite hunt? And I'm like, whatever I have a license for at the time. Um I, I, you know, I, I used to, I, I cut my teeth on it, uh, a little magazine called Eastman's Hunting Journal. I was their research at first, uh, uh, their first research editor back in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, it was a really heavy Western influence. And, you know, if basically if you left Wyoming, that, that Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Montana line and headed east, they weren't going to talk about it. And, um, which I, that was true. I knew that stuff west of there and I I understood it. Um, I didn't get in a tree stand until I was 33 years old. So I had never hunted whitetail. Um, but I have now realized that 
as uh, as an outdoorsman, as a sportsman, um, they're all amazing. It's all a ton of fun. Um, and although I, I still have my favorite way to do things, there's something there's something special about going from a, a, a high physicality hunt to a to, to and turn that switch in your brain and get into the mode where patience uh, is king and you're you're more likely to have success if you understand wind and stand placement and you know that 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 chess match that is uh, that is whitetail hunting. Um, I always say you know western particularly western hunts you just got to be gritty you just got to be strong you just got to be have perseverance um uh, you don't have to be that smart it's not that hard you just have to be in physical physical shape Mm -hmm. whereas uh as you move to the to the wet to the eastern midwest eastern type stuff not that there's not white tails in the west but i think it changes you have to be mentally strong emotionally strong i i I about uh the first couple years i hunted whitetail i I went crazy literally i went crazy (laughs) because i can't sit still and um and it's so so it's a switch and it's and for me at my age now i just turned 40 uh 48 i had to think about that for a second um (laughs) you know with eight knee surgeries uh, in my past and coming off of some hard backcountry hunts I actually kind of look forward to that little bit of that respite that is uh, for for me physically that is the whitetail season, but then I get into it and I realize emotionally it's just such a it's such a high of high and low of lows because it's so it's so tasking mentally. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I totally get it, man. Because that's kind of. I've experienced that somewhat from the reverse. We do a lot of the tree stand hunting, and and as of late, well, my family's been going and hunting elk in the West for since the seventies. You know, I haven't been going that long, but you know, elk's kind of a part of what we do. But um, just here recently, have I kind of experienced some of the whitetail on the ground and just some of that more that stalking style hunting, and it's just um, I don't know. It's it's so cool how. It's all hunting, and you're hunting very similar game, but it's such a different activity whenever you, you know, are, are running around chasing down animals as opposed to trying to scheme and connive to, to just be in the right place at the right time and let one walk by. And it takes a completely different skill set. And like you were talking about, it's more mentally that you have to prepare to do one or the other versus, you know, physically, really, in, in my opinion at least, you know. Um, I I, th- I think you you hit the nail on the head. One thing I do want to mention is that one is not better than the other, um, but one, and I'm I'm comparing just for clarity of the listeners. I'm comparing spotting and stalking versus either ambush or tree stand hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, blind hunting. Um, in some cases, one way is the only way, or you're just going to blow everything out. I.e., if I'm in Kentucky and I am going to uh, still hunt for white-tailed deer in the Kentucky backcountry, I'm a moron. (laughs) 
<laughs> because there's no way I will can do that. Whereas if I'm in uh, Colorado and there's an aspen thicket and I can st- I can still hunt that, uh, totally different. Okay. Um, Why is that? Why? So explain that a little bit. Well, it's it's all about vegetation. It's all about noise. I mean, uh, Adam Wells, who's one of my co-hosts on the show, puts it very succinctly. You can fool their eyes, and you can fill their ears, but you can't fool their nose. Mm-hmm. Okay? That is the motto of spot and stock. That is the motto of any type of hunting, if you really think about it, even stand hunting. But when I'm stand hunting, yeah, it's maybe a little bit of luck, but I'm, I'm, I'm basing that on knowledge from maybe trail cameras, knowledge from what I've seen myself in the past experience, knowledge from what I see with trails and physical evidence. When I'm spot and stalking, I am looking at the terrain and I'm saying, can I move from point A to point B without being detected and get within bow range? And then, you know, maybe you have a shot with embedded or maybe you wait till they stand. Um, Kentucky, uh, I don't know if you guys, and you might have some of this in East, East Texas where, um, out West we have, uh, like brush, like, Mm -hmm. uh, oak brush and, and junipers and stuff like that. And they'll grow on the, on the side of a hill. Um, we call it a hill. A lot of people East of the Mississippi would call it a mountain. (laughs) Um, but you know, in these ridges and, well, you can just work around and sometimes through these patches of oak brush. And it's not fun, <laughs> but you compare that to Kentucky where they have autumn olives, or uh, which is kind of like a Russian olive, uh, with big old needles on it. And then you have the briars. And I am I have a new appreciation for uh, Br'er Rabbit. Uh, you know, when they talk about the briars, because I didn't grow up with briars. I grew up with mesquite bushes and cactuses. Yeah, they're okay, but you can see those you walk around. Mm-hmm. In Kentucky, you try and move through an area, and it might be open up top, but these briars just get a hold of you. There's no way you could stalk silently through there. I don't care if you wear the bear's feet or the the whatever the newest trend of putting something on your dadgum feet to be quiet. You know, they've got these slip-over things or you take your shoes off, put these moccasins on. You just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I have spot, I have crawled out of a, a tree stand in Kansas and stuck, stalked up on a, uh, on a bedded buck in a plum thicket because I could see my route and I could see my cover. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, t- to... To be wise, a true and a, and a great hunter, I don't care where they're from or what they do, the, some of the best hunters I've been around were whitetail hunters, and they come out west, and it's no different. They're phenomenal western hunters because they're just dang good hunters, mm-hmm. right? Right. So so with spot and stock, you know, I'm looking and I'm I'm gauging the situation and saying, um, do I ha- is this a high percentage play? Okay, we always want to uh, look for high percentage plays, um, just like in sports, you know. Um, it, if it's a good buck, I might not want to stalk that buck in that situation because if I blow him out, especially in Western states and in, in, on public land, 
you blow a, a buck out, he could leave. He could be two canyons away um, before by the time he stops running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, whitetail might be a little bit different um, because uh, they do they have a little bit smaller range. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen whitetail. Um, I've seen whitetail get the heck out of oh, dodge yeah. too. They'll so, hightail it, yeah. man. They they yeah. they'll run too, and it seems like. The further west you go, the more willing they are to just get after it and go. I think they just have well, the, bigger range. Well, and, and, and the, the the bigger the range, in in my humble opinion, dict is dictated by the amount of cover. Yeah. Um, if you go to Missouri and you got these big, <clears throat> large hardwood thickets, um, uh, actually, is it, it wouldn't be called a thicket, but just just big t- timber areas, right? Yeah. Mm. Th- they've got so much cover. Um, Versus some areas in Kansas where it's it, it's the plains, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to have some uh, creek bottoms and stuff that are going to have some trees and maybe you have some windrows planted by a farmer, you know, at some juncture, whatever. Um, but you're going to see that white-tailed deer is going to hightail it to a long way away because he's getting to his next cover. Um, so... I say that uh, to, to compare and contrast um, the differences, and just because you're hunting whitetail in the, in the traditional tree stand way doesn't mean that you can't climb out of the stand and and take the fight to them. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've 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 got out of a turkey blind, and I'm sure you guys have too. In a situation, maybe you have a bar ditch or something, you know a. Uh, and you ju- drop down in a, 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 some cover and, and pop. There's nothing funner than sneaking up on, on a, the, the smartest, stupid bird in the world. <laughs> um, because, you know, you get in and you know where they're going and it, it's not towards you. So you get out, you move around them. You don't have to worry about the wind and, and them smelling you. And, and then you just wait and they walk by and you shoot them in the head. You know, I mean, that's a lot of fun too. So. Dude, it is. I love that, that kind of thing. I've killed several turkeys in uh you know an unorthodox way i guess you'd say when something maybe not promoted by the nwtf yeah not really the purest way but man sometimes it's about killing a bird and having something to eat you know it's it's a lot well, different wait, wait, but 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 i that's the first time i've ever heard that somebody would frown on on you getting out or not calling them in and just going and shooting them. I mean, it, it, don't we have a tag in our pocket? Isn't <laughs> isn't the isn't the thing? I mean, my whole goal when I purchase a tag is I'm purchasing a tag for an adventure. Now, I want that adventure. If I kill something or not, that does not diminish from the adventure. We've we've put ourselves. I'm gonna get on my soapbox just for a second here, guys. Let's, let's go. Okay. Okay, let me get my step ladder to get up on the yeah, soapbox. Say, on your, on um, your box, you're kind of the same height as us once you get on it. So you get... Yeah, there you go. Uh, let me look you in the eye. Um, so when I do, when I talk about television, hunting television, we have done a tremendous disservice to the industry, to the, to the sport we love, um, to the heritage we love, because we have started to put boxes around what we should and shouldn't do. Oh, you shouldn't shoot a bedded animal. Well, well, hold on. If I have a stick and string in my hand and I am stealthy enough to get into an area where I have a clean shot on a bedded animal 
and and oh, I get it all the time online. Um, you'll see one of the shows I think I sent you, uh, Too Close for Comfort 2.0. Yeah, mm-hmm. I noticed where, that in where, that show. Yep. He, he uh, Dave Dave Bronio shot the buck at the end at nine yards bedded. Amazing. Now oh, we yeah. had forty mile per hour winds. That helps a lot. Yeah. Um, because mule deer's uh, one of their main defenses is hearing. Um, but you don't have to worry about the wind. And he gets up there and boom, that animal couldn't have ducked the string, could he? Because no. he was laying down. That animal is totally unaware. Um, you have the opportunity to make a cleaner, more quick kill. Um, and and I, we got so much flack when people saw that. Of course, we get flack. We're always going to get haters. That's sure. just part of it. If you film your you stuff, it's and, just flack yeah. is a part of it, man. Yep. But... Like this idea of the television industry creating uh, or popularizing hunting, and then all of a sudden now we get you know you got your base camp of guys that only want to bugle bulls in. You got uh, yeah. your base camp of guys that only want to um, uh, you know call a turkey in. That's the only pure way to do it. Um, you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we did we've done poorly is we've given them a an idea that. If you go to Kansas, let's say, for example, and you crawl up a tree, a 180-inch buck's going to walk by. Yeah. That's uh, not true. No, Now, it's not. it does happen. You will kill big deer and big elk where there are big deer and big elk. These guys that go and say, I want a 170-inch you know, buck in, uh, you know, outside of Ozona, Texas, okay, and um, – you might be holding out for a couple of decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, because uh, it's just the genetics aren't there. So, uh, but we've we've portrayed ourselves as a hunter. If you're a good hunter, you're going to go and you're going to crawl up this tree and you're, this huge buck's going to walk by. Same thing out, out, out west. I grew up, cut my teeth on a VHS, which for you guys, VHS used to be a tape. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Used to put, okay, you know. Um, yeah, I grew up with um, those. Dude, I had Whistling yeah. Wings, man, on DVD, man, or All on right, VHS. Well, well, we I have a stack of tre- uh, Primo, Primos The Truth Elk Series, right? Yeah, oh, those One, two, killer. three, all those. Okay, every yeah. year I'd get it, and I would wear that sucker out. Um, <laughs> but that, what that, that painted a picture is you go out. Now, I come to find out as I – later on was the places they're hunting are these amazing properties that do have a ton of elk and you can get away with a lot of different stuff but we we portray hey if you come out west and you squeeze a hoochie mama then the next <laughs> thing you know a big old bull is going to come running and that's just not reality right. i mean so there's been times i've snuck in on bulls and and shot bulls and never made a peep but then there has been other times when I have called bulls in, and it's quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. it's like a it's like a calling in a turkey, you know, and, and shooting shooting them in the face at two yards. It's kind of fun. Trevin, if there was eight quail sitting on the ground at twenty yards, I'm putting a shotgun shell down range real quick before they jump right. up. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you, man. I, I uh, quail are 
one of the tastiest things that, <laughs> that run around out there. So I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna let them jump up so I can shoot one or two. Whereas well, I can and shoot. I, and I and, and I don't want to knock the guy who has the opportunity in an area. Um, sure. Yeah. Where, you know th- they've got tons of opportunities, and so they're they they're holding to a standard where I'm not I'm not gonna shoot that quail till he flushes. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. great, especially if they have dogs because the, you know there's something really magical about working behind a good dog. Yeah. Um, but but I think if I were to tell you now, after you've shared that with me and said, well, you shouldn't do that, who am I, unless it's illegal yep. or unsafe, who am I to tell you and manage your ethics? I, That's I, I right. got to be really careful. <clears throat> That's right, um, man. I mean, we, we live in a, in a what people call a bait state. We like to call it, you know, feed or corn feeders, you know, like we have corn feeders ev- around every corner where we live right here. And right. Um, you know, and, and in my opinion, uh, it's a pretty ethical shot when you shoot a doe at a feeder that's eating, as opposed to trying to stop one on a trail in a small hole in the brush and make a shot at it after you've grunted at it and got it, you know, zero well, to a hundred. So, yeah, I mean, I, I used to have a lease down by Sanderson, Texas in the big Bend country. And, um, and if you didn't, run a bait station you wouldn't see a deer that's right exactly we're in the same boat it's the same saskatchewan if you're going bear hunting in the spring in saskatchewan and especially in some of that uh you know where you go past saskatoon 12 hours on a dirt road um (laughs) you're not gonna freaking see a black bear unless you have a bait station now with that being said i think people also need to realize that a good take Kansas for example that that's a that's a baiting state where you can bait. I put corn out in areas, and I'm putting corn out in areas to maintain a travel corridor mainly. Yeah. Because what's going to happen is they've got plenty of feed. It's not an area where, I mean, you're really also helping to feed the the deer population. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it more for uh, the does to get in a pattern. So then, a big mature buck very rarely in daylight is going to just walk out and start feeding on the feeding on the corn. Right. It just doesn't. But what they're going to do is they're going to come through that area and check the corn for scent. Right. And then they're going to move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, it, it's, the, it's the same thing as, as guys putting out scent, you know, or drags or anything like that. Um, so if we start opening that, that can of worms for uh, – dictating what we should and shouldn't do as long as it's within the, the the laws now in Colorado you can't bait so what are you doing well uh just like in 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 the Rocky Mountains when I'm hunting elk or whatever I'm trying to get between the, where they're feeding and where they're bedding mm-hmm. okay and 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 I know it's going to put me in a situation and I have hunted elk in a tree stand above water what's the difference between water uh, or uh, some type of feed. Yeah, um, it's a necessity. I mean, it is. Yeah, it, you know, you got you got the four things that dictate, um, especially out west, that dictate whether or not you're going to have success finding animals. <clears throat> One is for prime forage. Okay. Two is cover, either thermal cover or cover for uh, you know safeties, things like that. Three is is basically um, you got uh, uh, human pressure uh or pressure in general mm-hmm. that could be uh other hunters or in like a state like idaho that could be wolves mm-hmm. wolves can be your pressure that's going to you know dictate that and um 
So you got food, you got wa- uh, you got water, you got uh, pressure, you got cover. Those four items uh, in in New Mexico. If you're hunting that earlier bow season for elk in the, in unit 16A15, the Gila area, and it's a dry year, water holes are huge because water are like el- uh, or, uh, water for elk is like water for cattle. They got they got to water once a day. Mm-hmm. And um, where in Colorado, it's it's not as much a limiting factor because of the fact that you're dealing with uh, there's you know there's a creek. Or a spring in almost every drainage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're sitting on water, yeah, you might have something come in, but uh, but but down in 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 uh, the the you know South Texas, it's similar too. You I mean we would we would set tree stands up on water also because water was so important. Right. Yeah. So when you so you you kind of talked about how um, to be opportunistic, in which we've been kind of discussing. Sometimes you. You may jump out of a deer stand uh, if you can see um, a path f- uh, to stalk a deer. Um, but in general, um, you know, I know that you've been you've done a lot of different hunts. Are you ever looking at like Are you looking at an opportunity because to go on that hunt because you want to stalk, or are you just knowing uh, this is an area that I would like to go? Uh, and it, and it may be an area that is stalking. And how do you determine that on a big level? Yeah, that that's a great question. I I think it all. I don't go out to any hunt thinking one style is the way I'm going to go. I, I, let me use an example. If you watch that Too Close for Comfort 2.0 mm-hmm. film that I sent you, um, so. We're sitting there. What when I'm looking at a map and I'm looking at a new area, the first thing I'm looking for is uh, is glassing points. Um, people come out west, and they they realize it's going to be more of a physical hunt and this and that. And what they end up doing is they spend more time taking their bow for a walk <laughs> than they do finding animals. Mm-hmm. So what I try and tell people is, look, don't. Go in and just think, oh, this looks elky. I'm going to go walk out and see if I can find some elk because it didn't work that way, um, or mule, especially mule deer. You need to find them. You you need to bed them, or you need to have a pretty good idea of where they're at, and then then you'll make your plan. And I say that because in that film, um, we we had had an opportunity. I had actually missed a deer, um, a shot into a, a cut bank that I didn't realize kind of went out at the bottom <laughs> when the buck stood up and I felt like an idiot but um uh, Dave got you back but, on that too that's pretty good Oh he he did yeah he did but uh when I went that evening there was an ag field with some round bales and I'm like okay well what do I do cuz normally you're not going to spot and stalk moving animals that's very hard mm-hmm. because when animals are up you know they're higher first of all they're moving they're very alert you know, an animal beds in an area they feel safe. Um, so they're not moving. They don't have the height advantage of being standing. Um, so there's a lot of things that kind of kick back uh, to give us the a, a little advantage. Um, but when they're moving, so I, I, I share that because in the afternoons, if we don't have something bedded or they're already getting up to go move towards their feeding area, we're better off being in an ambush point and staying. Why? Because we're going to blow more deer out moving through the country that – Perhaps we didn't see two ridges over. They see us, they're gone. And if we would have just sat, they'd have walked, you know, towards us. So we get 
we don't know what to what we're going to do. I've already screwed up the, the shop for the day. So we move out and I get in between these two hay bales. That's my blind. I mean, we don't we don't cut any branches or basically we just tuck into the blind and see what happens. And um, if as you watched it, I'm we're sitting there and uh, which we had never seen a whitetail buck out there, but a good whitetail buck walks out and I shot it at 35 yards. Dude, yeah. such a beautiful just footage and scenery there and big deer, man. That was it was awesome. I love that part of the video. Well, I, I think and I think what that shows you is you have to be flexible. Sure. I love I love getting my Daniel Boone on, man, dude. <laughs> I love, you know, getting sneaking up on there and and being able to see the tines sticking up over the grass or, you know, behind the bush or whatever. <clears throat> I love that. It's it's awesome because you are on their level. You're taking the fight to them. Um, but if the situation doesn't call for that, there's times that I've got to within a certain distance, and I know these deer are going to come out, and, and they're going to actually come right down the draw when they come out uh, and put themselves in bow range. Then I might set up there. So I've spot and stalked. I've spotted them. I've stalked within X number of yards, and then it turns into an ambush hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it's not that I'm a better hunter because I get within range. You guys could do the exact same thing. Now you might realize that in this situation, I would say, nope, it's not worth it because of this, this, and this. And you guys might've pushed that luck and learned that same lesson that I learned because I made that mistake. You might learn it, but pretty soon you're going to pick up on, this is a high percentage stock. This is a low percentage stock. Um, and, uh, and you're going to, you're going to get that feel, that sense of when do I move? Um, I think another thing that people don't understand is animal behavior, mm-hmm. um, understanding when deer are alerted, when deer are, uh, or elk, you know, any, any animal and, and being able to read that body language. There's times that deer are, are in plain sight of me. Um, and I use uh, Montana decoys all the time, as, as you guys have seen. Um, and there's times I'll will literally go straight at them. I'm just reading their body language. Are, and the moment they look like, oh, this ain't, this ain't right, then I'll stop, you know, um, or, or I'll change course. But a lot of times as I'm reading their body language, I can get within bow range just using a decoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about a decoy in a breeding sense, but just a decoy in and just using a decoy for cover. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I, I think you have to you have to not be afraid to fail. Um, same thing with when you're turkey hunting and you take a you know a fan or, or a, you know Montana decoy has what they call a wily tom, and 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 you go straight at the bird, and all of a sudden the bird comes to you. Well, you're doing a mix of of decoying them in, of spot and stock, of maybe you're calling to, you know, as you're, as you're moving in. Um, and I just think you, a lot of it has to do with what, what is the, what's the animal behavior? How are you reading that? And then how do you get into bow range to make a good shot? So, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that, I think it, everything changes there. It is a lot of fun to be able to spot a, a, the classic spot in a deer. Oh yeah, he beds in in some cliffs. Let's say there's nothing better than rocky terrain where you can get the wind right and you turn around and you know you might have to make a, a mile loop around another ridge and then <laughs> the next thing you know you're 
right on top of him, and they have no idea you. Yeah, that, that I, is that is stinking awesome. I did that last year, and I was probably emotionally unprepared for that whole like, oh my gosh, <laughs> there he is at 16 yards. You know, like I just <laughs> it's it was the the first time I'd ever done something like that, and, and I made that mile loop you talked about, and um, you come around and and I, you know I just not knowing what I'm doing pretty much, you know, I, I've, I've stalked animals or whatever, and, and, but I've always maintained that sight picture or, or seen them, you know, the whole time, but then like just kind of having that feeling of knowing he's there and then going up and trying to find him. And then it's like, all of a sudden you're way too close, you know, or not too close, but mm-hmm. like at least, at least emotionally you're too close. But Well, and, and that's when a buddy is really good because yeah. there's something special about having somebody watching that animal and then being able to communicate with you via hand signals or if it's legal on a two-way radio or texting or whatever. I mean, again, now we get into, oh, that's not ethical. Yeah. And I, um, whatever. Um, but I, but if it's legal, like in Nebraska, you can actually use two-way radios um, as long as you're not in a moving vehicle um, or not in a vehicle at all. Really? And, um, yeah. So you have to check your regs. But what we'll do is, of course, we've left the vehicles and we've hiked out to these quote unquote glassing points that we know about and we're finding deer but then once we do we we as a team sneak in we get a camera set up on that deer bedded and then we have the ability to um have the hunter and another cameraman for us because we film everything sneak around and and then it's just that peace of mind when you lose sight of the animal that you're going after knowing that he's still there and knowing that you can take your time and relax and he you know because a mule deer they're funny a mule deer will bed down let's say at nine o'clock that that mule deer is not in his day bed he's going to bed down for an hour or so and then he's going to get up and he's going to feed and then he's going to bed down again and that's his day bed Hmm. so it's very important that you don't move in too fast okay because you want him to be in a situation where if he if he chooses to get up and he feeds down that bottom and around the corner, now all of a sudden, because of your approach, he catches your wind, mm-hmm. right? So it's very important that you allow the animal to put himself in a position where, again, it ups that percentage. Um, and sometimes they'll stand up, they'll feed a little bit and bed right back down, you know, five yards from where they bedded the first time. But sometimes I've seen them go 200 yards and then bed back down and mm-hmm. then they're there for the day. Gotcha. So um, I, I think understanding the animal behavior is very important. Yeah. I think you have to – sometimes you have to be aggressive though. Um, some people are ultra aggressive, which is not a good thing because uh, patience is a virtue. Sometimes people are too passive and um, they're like, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I just don't know. I don't. Well, get off the fence, dude. You, you're either here to hunt or you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you're not going to kill them from here. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's a point where you have to risk making a mistake because you know what it is. What's, what's your heart doing when you're at that bucket 16 yards? It is pounding in your ears. Mm-hmm. Now, as you do it more and more, you get more and more relaxed and you, and you kind of expect to get to that point. And then you just have to make the shot. Yeah. Um, but that comes with experience and time. Yeah. That, um, it's the it's it's the same reason you want the ball in Michael Jordan's hands with ten seconds left. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I kind of I got I have something that I kind of I kind of just want to bolster one of your points and then and then I have a, a question, kind of a big question for you. 
Um, you know, I, I think the animal behavior uh, thing that you keep kind of coming back to is is a huge deal. And, um, you know, obviously the majority of, of people live in the city and even a lot of hunters live in cities where you don't have a ton of wildlife contact every day. But I feel like that um, animal behavior. Um, so, for instance, if you're stalking a mule deer um, or if for, OK, for for an example, personally, um, if I was stalking a whitetail, um, which we did a few times last year, um, back when I was 10 years old, uh, stalking ducks, I can use, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm using things that I've picked up uh, along the way, stalking other animals and observing other animals and how they behave and especially deer. Uh, but just being, you know, being able to see deer and pass deer, uh, whether they're does or whatever, you know, over the years, seeing how they how they react to each other and to uh, things that may be coming, you know, a deer that may all of a sudden peek up over the hill 100 yards away. Um, I think that kind of stuff is really important. So I would kind of, uh, I guess, just uh, emphasize that, um, and Casey's really good at this, but just be observant in your daily routine, you know what I mean? Don't, uh, don't get in that grind, nose to the grindstone um, of business and work and everything else and not pay attention when a squirrel runs across the road in front of you <laughs> to how it actually acts, you know, and what it's doing. Uh, well, look at your dog. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, it, you sneak up on your dog. Look at the dog, uh, um, his behavior, even though he knows you and, and, and you're not a threat. Um, look at that dog. And the way that dog responds when he's lazily laying there in the sun, and then the difference when somebody drives up, his head pops up, his ears go up, Mm -hmm. he looks, then he stands, then he runs to investigate. I mean, you see all of these traits. Well, animals do the same thing. Turkeys do the same thing. What happens when a turkey is alarmed? You you hear the dreaded putt, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, A doe catches your wind, and what happens? She snorts, she stamps. Um, These are all signals. Um, but when an animal is relaxed and even when they see something like, a, let's say a, a buck is feeding and he picks his head up, his ears go forward and then he puts his head back down his ears drop and he goes back to feeding. Um, you know, was he alert? Well, he was checking something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I just think it's ingrained in their, in their, psyche in their in their genes i i don't know whatever their their self-awareness that i mean they just do that occasionally just to give a scan just to you know it's like uh, i was a a police officer and one of the things that they always talked about was tunnel vision you don't you didn't want to be uh locked in um and have tunnel vision you are always scanning why Mm -hmm. because a threat can come from anywhere well same thing with them sure yeah it's in the west you got mountain lions you got bears you got people you got wolves you got there's a lot of things that can cause uh you know a a a threat to to the animals Mm -hmm. so so i i think body language on animals in general is is you don't have to you know be a lifelong western spot and stock hunter to, to understand right. animal behavior yep exactly um, so yeah so uh, don't overthink it don't overthink it i tell people just just see look at their body language have the wherewithal to concentrate what are they doing mm-hmm. oh okay this is not a good time for me to move because they're looking right in my direction they might not be looking at you but they're looking right in your direction mm-hmm. you know you wait for them to put their head down 
wait for them to shake shake the the flies off their head, you know, whatever it might be. Right. So, you know, with that said, with with their their wherewithal that that these animals have and their ability to see danger or to sense danger in one way or another, um, how are you? I mean, send give us some details on how you're locating an animal. Uh, a target animal for one, you know, especially if you're looking for that three, four or five year old buck. Um, and in an area like, like Nebraska, where you guys have been, maybe, um, it's, it's wide open for miles and miles. How do you stay? Um, how do you locate an animal? So in other words, see it, um, before and without it seeing you. Uh, that's a great question. And I think the bottom line is, uh, by the best optics you can afford. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, again, going back to my point of people coming out west and taking their bow for a walk, don't put the miles on your boots. Put the miles on your eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, get the get the glass, um, and I can go into that. I mean, I I carry uh, ten by forties on my chest. I have fifteens, by no uh, in my in my pack, and then I have a spotting scope. So what I start out with is when I. Uh, you know, I'm, I get to my glassing point. I pop out my tripod. I uh, first thing I do is I take my ten by forties and I'm scanning and I'm looking for uh, animals in any place where they would be easy to spot. Okay, and especially if it's at first light, you're going to have animals moving. That's huge help. It's e- much easier to see an animal that's moving than it is an animal that is bedded. Oh yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. but. After after I've I haven't found something or maybe I've okay there's some does there well then I'll pop my 15s onto my onto my onto my uh, tripod and I'll start really picking stuff apart. So as I pick that apart, what I'm looking for is again animals. I'm looking for easy opening stuff like that. Then I'll go back and then I start gritting stuff out where I'm looking for parts of animals. I'm literally looking for the glint of an antler if if the sun's rising. I'm looking for a flick of an ear. Do you look for those I'm individually? For like do you do you scan a landscape and looking in particular with focus towards an antler and then come back and scan the whole landscape again looking for an ear or do you or you just no. being no, observant no, no, about no. it? No, no, no. I've already done I've already done the basic scan with my 10 by 40s. Okay. If something was there it would have jumped out at me. As I'm going through, I'm now looking you can do some different things. Some people grid. Some people go on a horizontal line and they work through. Um, I tend to work left to right in what I can see, and what I'm, I'll pick an area and I'm gonna I'm gonna look at. Let's say you have a draw coming out, and I and there's I've got a little bit of vegetation and some brush and maybe some junipers or whatever, right? I'm gonna start looking through that. I'm gonna start picking apart that those clumps, and I'm looking for. And in this time, I'm looking, of course, if, if an animal is there or steps out, I'm going to see it because of the movement. But I'm also looking for the bits and pieces at that time. And then when I find something, then to, to reassure or to really study, that's when I'll pull out my spotting scope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, which of those do you actually, you know, because I hear that a lot. And I, I use it to some extent, extent too, you know, like, oh, the flicker of an ear, a tail, a leg, or whatever. But which of those actually usually gives the deer away? Antlers. Antlers. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 an antler because um, it, it, that associates with movement. Mm-hmm. 
Um, a flicker of an ear can do anything with movement has. But think about it. If, you, if you're to that point where they've already bedded down, um, you're not going to get the movement you would if they were walking, feeding through an area. Yeah. But what you will get <clears throat> is a turn of the head. Mm-hmm. Okay. The antlers are also going to stick up higher. So in some situations, they're bedded, and all you can see is their antler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, been, there's been many a time I've seen a stick move, and it wasn't a stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I've, already, yeah. I've, already, I've literally already looked over that area, and I come back, and I see a stick move, and I'm like, what? That's when I pull out the, the spotting scope, throw that on there, and sure enough, that's a dadgum antler. And mm-hmm. honestly, I feel like that's a chink in the armor of, of deer. Like, in the spotting that I've done— even mature bucks kind of ignore the fact that they have these big things sticking off the top of their head, and they'll be completely concealed, but those antlers won't be. And you know, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's like a cut milo field or a plum thicket or whatever. Like those things, like it's like they forget that that sticks up above the cover, and, and they they that gives them away a decent amount. I, you know, I've done it as much as you, but uh, I would agree with you. Like antlers, far and away, are what I usually spot when I see something. Right. Well, and you know, you speak of a Milo field in Eastern Colorado. We killed a good buck one year, and all, and we had knew we knew he was in there because we'd put up a trail camera on a on a windmill, and the buck was was uh, coming to water at night, so we knew this good buck was in there, mm. and we literally were scanning a Milo field, and all you could see was his antlers. And it's the only reason we ended up, uh, you know, circling around, getting the wind right, and uh, four of us snuck in there and got oh. cameras set up and decoys set up. And then when he stood up, the shooter was 25 yards, and I have I was actually filming for at this juncture because I'd I'd already um, it well um, we kind of go in turns, and it wasn't my turn, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, but but what we did is I just popped a decoy up. I had my camera set up on the tripod right on where he was at, you know, but then I popped the decoy up and we ended up having someone go around the other side with a doe decoy. And that's what finally got him to stand. He stood up, looked at that doe decoy, looked back at my buck decoy. Well, all in this same time, my buddy's coming to full draw because his attention's totally on us. Um, So you're right. I don't know if it's a chink in the arm or, or just the fact that they still have to scan if they if they're trying to make their antlers disappear their head's going to be on the ground yeah and that is a very vulnerable position because the predators they're dealing with don't deal with sight as much as scent mm-hmm. okay so they're they're using and of course let's say a coyote or a wolf or something like that they're going to come down downwind which their sense of smell isn't going to help them from that predator. So they've got to have their eyes mm-hmm. where they can see. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, uh, I, I, it is definitely, I, I would say this is where patience comes out and the ability to say, okay, I don't see anything. Let's move. You might move 150 yards down to, down the ridge to a different vantage point, And all of a sudden now there's more deer. Mm-hmm. And then, especially with bedded deer, I think, People don't talk enough about this, but when you find one deer, that's when you really need to pick apart, especially in places that's got a lot of cut banks and a lot of small draws like Nebraska, western Nebraska. Um, You need to find those other deer. I don't know how many times I've been stalking in on one buck, and it turns out there's four bucks in there with him. Mm -hmm. So how do you, when you go to pick up and move, 
um, and you feel like you've exhausted your eyes on that area, how, how are you doing that without blowing the country out when it's in real open well, country? Well, we're, we're, yeah, it's a risk you run. Um, I mean, you, you're, mo- you're moved through the country really quietly and smartly. I mean, I, I put it this way. You always expect to find a deer in the next draw. So if I have to cross a draw to go up on another ridge, before I cross that draw, I'm going to, as I ease up, I'm going to just get my eye line. So I'm scanning and looking, looking. Maybe I'll glass a couple of spots where I could expect to see an animal. Um, and then I kind of I kind of still hunt my neck my way to the next glassing point. Um, have you ever, and I've done it time and time again, where you're so focused on glassing 500, 600, 800 yards away, <laughs> and then when you're when you're done, you look up and there's a freaking deer standing there looking at you at 80 yards. Yeah, <laughs> or in bow range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I mean that that happens. You have to do the you have to do the scan first. I was hunting deer in Colorado, and we were sitting, leaning up on the pickup truck tires, glassing this ridge about 600 yards away, okay? And I'm looking for these deer, and I'm, I've, I'm seeing a couple does, but I'm looking for this big buck I know is in there. And I look around my tripod, and he's standing there at 45 yards, and he starts walking towards me. Ooh. Now, in that situation, it was a rifle hunt, but I had my bow. <laughs> Uh, and, but my bow wasn't sitting right next to me. Oh no. It was in the back of the truck. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. 200 inch deer uh. walking up. He's within range. If I would have had my bow, I could have picked my bow up, put an arrow on and shot him right there. Mm, Instead, man. I ended up, and I don't know if you've ever tried to work a zipper. Or uh, you can't. fine motor skills. <laughs> yeah. When a 200 inch buck is within bow range, I I couldn't get my zipper on my case open. Then I couldn't get my quiver on my bow, so I just jerked an arrow out of my bow and then realized I didn't have my release on. Oof. I dropped my release three times. Mm. Well, I still came to full draw at this buck at 50 yards, <clears throat> but by then he'd worked around and he was actually heading towards a, a private property fence, and I knew. If I shot him, he was going to take three bounds and jump that fence. Mm. And I did not shoot him because in this area, I knew I couldn't access that private land. Heck, he could have jumped the fence and died right there. Um, mm. And they wouldn't have let me cross the fence. Man, man so that's... I didn't shoot him. <clears throat> yeah. That's rough. That's tough. So when, you, when you've when you located an animal, what what are the next steps? I mean, when you've got that, you see that buck's horns... Yeah, sticking up above the sage or whatever it might be. What what are the next steps? I mean, I, I guess you can probably leave out, you know, setting up another camera or whatever. <laughs> you know, for the, for the general guy that doesn't video his. Well, um, I would say this. I'd get some coffee out, maybe have a snack. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Do, the worst thing you could do is say, oh, there he is. Let's go after him. Yeah. It's the worst thing in the world. That's a good point. The man. hardest thing, the hardest thing, and, and, and there's a couple reasons that I've learned over the years that this is helpful. He's not going anywhere, mm-hmm. okay. Unless you're close and you're running the risk of blowing him out just by sitting there, you need to have a snack. You need to chillax. <laughs> you need to relax. You need to, uh, um, you know, uh, keep eyes on him. Mm-hmm. Because if it's eight thirty and he's bedded, there's no way I'm making a move right there. Yeah. Because and I, again, I'm I'm honing in on specifics for mule deer. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it might be different for different animals. But I'm going to 
verify my high percentage play. And that means probably throwing my tri- my uh, spotting scope on there and picking apart everywhere around him. What other deer there? I might even back up, get out of his line of sight, move around to a different vantage point where I can see the area around him better. But I am not planning on making a stock on that buck until I'm sure he's there for the day. Okay? Okay. So once I do that, let's say you have a buddy. We're not filming, but you do have a buddy. Mm -hmm. You put your buddy up in that great vantage point where he can see a lot of country and all that stuff, and he starts, he watches. You're going to figure out which way the wind is. Use that to your advantage. Um, I will say this. I used to hate hunting in high winds. I used to hate it when it was 25, 30 mile per hour winds. Hated it. I freaking love it Mm -hmm. (laughs) now, Mm -hmm. hunting mule deer over the past 10 years. Because I learned I can get away with so much more. Um, Dave, on that the film we were talking about, I'm convinced he could have walked up and grabbed that antler of that buck. <laughs> I am. That's awesome. <clears throat> because he had the advantage of the wind and, the, and the, the bucks had his head down and was literally asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you get into that position, you start to close. When you're closing, you know, of course, you're going to landmark. The first thing you're doing is you're looking at landmarks. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you don't have any type of uh, communication other than hand signals. Um, you landmark it, and then you determine a, a, a signaling system w- with your buddy. Now, uh, again, your buddy is well uh, out of range of blowing this buck. The last thing you want is because your buddy's giving you hand signals, he blows the buck yeah. out of there. Mm-hmm. So you have to have some common sense there. I'm yeah. going to let you guys yeah. uh, take that. We won't go too far into that. <laughs> hey, uh, and for us... Can we dive a little bit into the hand signal thing in particular? I don't want you to yes, tell me Yes, I'm specific. going to. Okay, yeah. Let's yes, talk about I will. that. I will. I'll tell you exactly what I use. Okay. But, um, but one thing for us, I, we'll get even to within three, 400 yards because we have a big lens. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And we feel pretty pretty secure about that so you can even move a little bit closer with your buddy uh you know and then and then have your buddy behind or a little offset of a bush where he's got his binoculars set up but and you you'd be able to see him um and 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 he'd still have some cover from that buck right now hand signals yes once you get to within a hundred maybe 80 yards whatever you know and you and and now maybe you're going to have to drop to your hands and knees okay it's always good to have that secure is he still there so your buddy's looking at you through his binoculars you make the hands out kind of like well what do you think type of signal you know just kind of (laughs) like yeah you know and and if you're if the buck has moved (laughs) this is going to sound silly but if the buck has moved then then your buddy will go like no, like hands going back and forth. I'm doing the motion you can't see me because this is audio, but <laughs> I'm do- like no, like no, it's it's not gonna work. Like the field goal was and no then, good. Is that kind of exactly okay. perfect? Thank you. Yeah. That's I'm gonna. Can I borrow that? You got <laughs> it. You got it. Um, the field goal was no good. He walked away. So now I'm doing the arms like I'm walking away, and then you point in the direction he went. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so what other signal would you need at that point? Um, maybe he's still there. You put a big round over your head, make an, uh, put your hands above your head, and make a a, a, a circle. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. 
gotcha. Right? Gotcha. Okay. And then if he's sleeping, you do the old two hands and you put your hands on your, you know, like to the side. Right? <laughs> Tyler did that to me this last year and yeah, I had no, no clue. clue what was going on. Because <laughs> right. we hadn't so discussed that, means, that yet, you know. Right, exactly. It's, well, without communication, you're lost. So that are the, those are the signals we use. Yeah. Um, now, it gets more in depth and you'll have to figure this out. But what if your buddy says you need to go around? He, you know, if he's moved and repositioned, how do you communicate that? That's hard. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. Um, so, but but the primary signals are is, hey dummy, you blew him out. He's gone. Okay, <laughs> we know how to. T- or everything's okay. He's still bedded. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What that does for you, you know, maybe Casey, maybe you're the stalker, uh, maybe you're the person that's going out there. That gives you the peace of mind. Okay, I can slow down. Mm-hmm. He's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You have to have the confidence that unless that buck, unless you blow that buck out, he's not going anywhere. That little bit of confidence will slow you down. I I don't know how many times Adam and Dave, um, Adam Baron, uh, Adam Wells and Dave Baronio, um, of course, who have uh, helped host the show, and and Lane uh, Walter is now hel- helping host the show. These are guys that are just hardcore hunters that I've are, are friends of mine that that we've hunted together for years. Um, but I can't tell you how many times they've turned and looked at me and said, slow down, dude, freaking <laughs> slow down mm-hmm. because I'm so excited. I got a lot of energy anyway, um, but I'm so excited. <laughs> I, 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 I'm like, I got to get there. I got to get there right now. Well, the faster you go, the louder you are and you know, and then you move, all you need is 10 seconds to make the shot. Mm-hmm. Right? It's all you need. Mm-hmm. You just need that magical 10 seconds. But if he's not there when you get there, you'll never have that 10 seconds. So you have to, you know, you, you get what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah, right? sure, so. yeah. Yeah, so um, what if you haven't landmarked the deer perfectly or you're, you're coming in the wrong spot or whatever? That's the, the issue I ran into last year. Like, I, I, I knew, like, you know, in a eighth of an acre area of where this deer was, but I couldn't see him at all on the approach uh, until I got to 16 yards, right? I could see the tips of tips of his antlers. So yeah, you didn't land. You didn't landmark very good. Well, there wasn't any landmarks. That's kind of that was kind well, of the issue. That, that that is true. Yeah. If you're in a bunch of nondescript trees or cover like that, that you you do make a good point. That is tough. Yeah. Because you're like, well, I know he's in that clump of trees. Well, if that clump of trees is 80 yards by 50 yards. Well, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Now, what what we're talking about is we can literally see this deer. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and 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 if your buddy on the on the glasses can see the deer, you, now you're in a situation. I know he's in this area. Then, <clears throat> then you need to be able to communicate somehow. Or, I have also seen guys. I'll be honest. There's a time when you quit communicating and just freaking hunt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you get into that zone, you're like, okay, I'm just going to hunt. And that means, let's say you're on your hands and knees and you take two little crawls and you take your binos and you come up very slowly and you raise up on your knees and you glass very slowly. Mm -hmm. And it takes you an hour to move 20 yards. Right. Yeah. Are there any okay. other hand signals that you would need, maybe? Or is that does that cover most of well, what you that, encounter? 
Yeah, I mean, that covers most of what you encounter. I mean, that's when it's nice where you have a, a radio, an earbud in your ear, and the guy can say, okay, uh, he is – do you see the green uh, – do you see the, the tree that has the broken branch hanging down? Mm-hmm. Yes, I see that. Okay. Um, and how do you communicate that with hand signals? That's, that's yeah. just really tough. Um, and it's also hard if you say, well, I'm going to tell him how many yards he's at. Well, that's ridiculous because I, when you're looking through glasses, especially four or 500 yards away, he might look like he's freaking 10 yards from the deer when oh, yeah. he's actually 50 yards from yeah. the deer. So it's hard to tell, to communicate, you are 50 yards from the deer. Well, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, the best thing you can say is, okay, if you, if you don't, if you're in a state that you can't elect digitally or, or, or radio or, or, or communicate that way, um, you have to be able to give some direction. I haven't come up with a good, a good close range system, um, other than, you know, stop, stop what you're doing, back out, you know, um, which that's pretty simple. Stop sign, right? You hold your hand up, stop. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and you know, you back away, um, uh, and then get in a situation where you can say, okay, you need to come from a different area. Mm -hmm. There's been times where we've backed out. I've come all the way back to my camera guy (laughs) and he's like, dude, you got to, you were fine, but you've got to get up above that next ledge. (laughs) <laughs> or he's going to, you know, or, or your, 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 uh, your bino guy, your glassing guy, your direction giver, he's seeing something and you're like, dude, I can't go there. If I go there, I'm going to be in plain sight of him. Uh-huh. I have to go this way. And that's when you just say, I'm going to hunt. Right. Yeah. Right. I know what I can see. I can see the buck. I have to go this yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, like last hundred yards. Cause I feel like. All this is well, stalking, right? First, can we can we talk about, like, when you're creating a plan, you know, a deer usually, like you said earlier, is looking downwind. So how do you, you know, like, but they're, they're, a lot of times it's not straight downwind. So, like, how do you, how do you put this plan together of I'm going to not be seen from his very wide angle of view and I'm also not going to be smelled? I mean, do you have, well, is it uh, not always possible? You, you can fool his eyes, you can fool his ears, you can't fool his nose. So everything's based on the wind. I don't care where he's looking. Now, if I can get to a situation where I can have thicker cover, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use my head, right? I'm a common sense. Okay. But what happens if he does, which they do all the time, they're in their day bed, they stand up, they switch ends, and they bed right back down. Now, all of a sudden, he's facing the opposite way. Okay? But his nose is only going to pick up the scent that's coming from the wind. Mm-hmm. So you can't get caught up as much on sight as you can on – and that's why I carry a decoy. If he's looking right at me and I'm reading his body language that he's thinking something's not right, I'm popping a decoy up. Even if I stick it in the ground and move around a different angle – if I'm within range, I'm using that freaking decoy. Yeah. Yeah. If I run out of cover, I'm using that decoy. Or, or, by the, I get into range, I can't move anymore, 
Now my buddy, who was a glasser, is now my decoyer. And he's going to go where he's not winded, of course, but he's going to go in a position where he can run that decoy like it's a deer. La, 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 Right? And all of a sudden, oh, I'm just a deer. And it helps if you say that under your breath, too, when you're walking. And, you just and then Become what the you'll find, what's crazy, and this is where we first learned our confidence in the decoys in it as an effective weapon of going right at them, is we were using them as a distraction in order to get deer to either A, stand so we had a shot, or B, literally just relax, Mm -hmm. we would get, the guy with the decoy would be within freaking bow range. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the deer wouldn't stand. Um, On Too Close for Comfort, the very first film, Dave misses a bucket at 10 yards. Okay, he's in this little depression. I go, and for 30, no, that's an exaggeration, probably 20 minutes, I'm 40 yards from that buck going back and forth like the old carnival freaking duck in the shoe. <laughs> beep, 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 back and forth. And the buck just looks at me, never stinking stood up. You know how I finally got him to stand up? Is I said, screw it, I'm going to act like I'm going to walk away, like I don't care about him. And I took that deer like I was walking away and went around the edge. The moment I went around the, 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 the bottom of that ridge and disappeared out of sight, he stood up to see where I went. Huh. Man, So and he was just that aggressive and was concerned with well, that Well, Dave was deer. at 10 yards the whole time. Yeah. Okay. Watch that first. Watch that too close for comfort. That first one. Yeah. Okay. Um, at, and I, at the time, I was shooting a stick bow, um, and and he missed the deer. And we have you, it's a quite a funny conversation because well, you see, you you saw if you watched two point you we we talked about that. Yeah. Oh, we I watched the first to one that too. A you bit. gave him a yeah, real hard yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, dude, I I was mad. I'll be honest. I was mad because he has a frigging compound bow. He's a good shot, and he screws that up. There's no, there would should be no reason why he didn't kill that deer. Anyway, he didn't, and he's a moron. Hey, but, do you, uh, so so in that last hundred yards, and, and it, you know, there's a point where again we're weighing: am I being too aggressive? Am I in a situation where you have a plethora of opportunities? You can be a little more aggressive. Yeah. I'm not a trophy hunter. I'll be honest. I'm a horrible, horrible trophy hunter. I just want a respectable uh, animal of that species. You know, I want to try and cure, kill a four-year-old or older if I can. Um, but I'm an, I'm an equal opportunity archer. And um, so I he doesn't have to be 180 inches for me to let the air out of him. I, I, I Honestly. I just want that close proximity and that excitement mm-hmm. and i'm going to take that meat and i'm going to feed my family i give a lot to my church so there's a lot of upside to not just the adventure but but the harvesting of that animal in a conservation aspect but for me it's all about that time that moment in time when it's your wits against that bucks and um yeah so so uh you did ask about the last hundred did i answer your question I guess. Yes, I yeah, that's that's pretty good, okay. man. I appreciate so, it. The last hundred yards. Yeah. If you think you're going too fast, you are. If you think you're not going slow enough, you aren't. Go slower. <laughs> that's my last hundred yards. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down. Okay? So are you uh, hardest thing to do? Are you shedding gear and trying to go light that last hundred yards and and just 
making it just you know just what you need to kill the animal or are you yeah yeah depending upon the terrain i'm boots are coming off maybe not 100 but the last last 50 for sure yeah boots are coming off um now if if i have a 20 mile per hour wind i don't care Mm -hmm. Uh, i might have my flip-flops on i might uh, who knows (laughs) (laughs) um i mean it doesn't matter when you have that type of wind cover doesn't matter Mm -hmm. um i do like to take my my uh my backpack off and the reason i'll take my backpack off at about 100 yards is because it's more comfortable Mm -hmm. i can actually be quieter there's times i have to lay there for hours literally hours and um it's just more comfortable yeah um sometimes i wish i wouldn't because then i'm like man i could sure use a drink of water right now yeah Yeah. and uh you know but uh you know if you can't hang you know, I just put another chew in and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So are you, um, on that kind of deal, you know, you talked about comfort. Uh, do you use like knee pads and stuff like that whenever you're, you're getting I do. like that? I do, especially with my bad, my bad left knee. I've had eight knee surgeries. And so I get very uncomfortable sitting. I can't even kneel and sit. You know how people sit on their heels yeah. kneeling? I can't even do that. My leg won't bend that far. Ooh. So, yes, that's very important. Um, so uh, I I either have uh, – I went to Lowe's and bought, um, like, tiling knee pads, uh-huh. like gel – I mean, like, good knee pads. Um, you got to be careful because some of those are pretty loud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're dealing with rocks and stuff like that. So you got to get the right kind. Um, but uh, we use Sitka gear, and they do have a knee pad in their um, – in their pants and some, some of their different variety of pants. Um, but in that situation where I have that knee pad, I'll also take a softer, like a volleyball knee pad and I'll put it underneath, um, just because of, of my bad knees. And, uh-huh. and you know, so gotcha. that's for sure. I'll even, depending on the country, I might even have gloves on, but I don't shoot in gloves. So normally I'm shedding those gloves by the time I'm a hundred yards out anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no good answer for that, man. Because, you know, honestly, especially you start getting out west, like whenever it's hunting season and it's windy, it's usually cold as all get out. And you got to keep your fingers warm enough to function. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to complete your task when you get there. But I'm like you. I can't. I have to have just open hand. Me right? too. I can't shoot with a glove on. And there's just no answer to functioning with a release and having a glove on and keeping your fingers warm without that you know i don't i don't well, know what I, the answer I, is I, when i went to the uh uh muskox hunting it was uh, five degrees to minus 30 <laughs> and i actually got frostbite on my thumb because of, of the fact that my on my stock it was like a two-hour stock and um you know the steel of my release touching my thumb um I ended up getting frostbite on my, on my thumb, mm. and um, it was a unique uh, because I couldn't wear gloves, right? Mm-hmm. So the time I really needed, but then what I would do is I kept switching hands, and I'd put one hand in my pocket, right, and then I'd hold my bow with the other and switch yeah. it back and forth. But the constant touching of that metal to my thumb, I think, is what ended up. But it's neither here nor there. I mean, yeah. what do you do? You 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 didn't come out there to be comfortable. I didn't. I don't go hunting. To be comfortable, I go hunting to have an adventure yeah. and to push mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, and that all that is, I'm not tough. I'm not the best shot. I'm not the best hunter. It's a it's a it's a switch in your mind, and we all have it. If you were an athlete, that's where you just go, man. This hurts. 
but I don't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that switch you have to, to make. And, um, and, and that makes, that's the difference between the 10 percenters. You know, there's 10% of hunters that kill 90% of the game. Mm-hmm. Why is that? They, they flip that switch and they do what needs to be done consistently to get it done. And, um, so I think, I think, as more and more info comes out, I think more and more people are going to become successful. I've actually seen that. Um, you see it in the success ratio, with especially with archery equipment over the years. People are learning. People are getting better at this uh, true art, this uh, you know learned experience that's played out in the field as as, as you make decisions, field mm-hmm. craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, I mean, yeah. Is it cold? Yeah, it's cold. Um, but you know what? I can be warm when I crawl back in my sleeping bag at, at night, and 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 I'll warm back up. Yeah. Um. So uh, here's here's one thing for listeners who who who. Well, you know, I'm having a problem balancing out my being uncomfortable and 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 but yet wanting to hunt. Is think back to all those times when you're in your office or at your house, or whatever, and use all the hours you spent dreaming about that moment. I spend thousands of hours for minutes of time of actually doing it, okay? Mm-hmm. If I can put myself back into that office where I'm sitting there wishing I was out in the field and realize I am in the field and change my freaking attitude... Boom, I'll flip that switch. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in kill mode. Okay? Yep. Don't allow the experience or the uncomfortableness of the experience for you to miss out on the experience. Um, and I'm not saying you got to be Rambo. I'm not saying you got to freaking, you know, I mean, you don't got to be Cameron Haynes and freaking run 200 milers. Come on. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I can't. <laughs> I mean, God, God bless Cam. I I mean, I, I ran camera for him when I was at the Eastman's and, and you know, I've I've – been at his house i've I, I feel like i know him i mean we're not close but the guy has earned everything he's got i don't know a guy who works harder but you don't have to do that to be successful mm-hmm. guys you don't have to be in tip-top shape one thing i will say is and you guys back me up on this when you were an athlete the better shape you were in the better mental state you were in is mm-hmm. that correct oh For yeah because sure. you don't have to think about being okay. tired yep right so the mind follows the body. If the body is in better shape, the mind's in better shape. Your body's not – you don't have to worry about your body failing you. I mean it, 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 it just builds on itself, mm-hmm. okay? So guys that say you don't need to do this, I just – I eat my donuts and that's, you know, uh, <laughs> that's all you need. And Well, you know what? I know some of the most – if you look at guys, I know guys that you would look at and you would say, this guy wouldn't even make it up the mountain. And I can't keep up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy Roth, which was a good friend of of Cameron's, um, I remember Cameron telling me the first time about him. We were we were in we were actually doing a bivy camp in Wyoming, and I was a cameraman, and I was laying there, and he was telling me about this guy Roy Roth, who I later met and got a chance to get to know a little bit. You know, I, I wasn't tight with him or anything like that, but I got to know him just a little bit. Roy was a big guy. If you looked at him, you would think, okay, he probably played a little football in high school. But what did he do after high school? He ate a bunch of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, 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 but the guy had a work ethic. The guy had a character. The, and Cam would tell me he'd throw a two, 
I, I, I'm trying to think back exactly. Like uh, a, a big two liter of water, throw it in his pack, two loaves of bread, and a huge jar of peanut butter. <laughs> and off he'd go. And Cam said, and I couldn't keep up with the guy walking uphill. I mean, he was, he was, he'd be sweating pickle juice, but he'd freaking, <laughs> you, but he, but you couldn't keep up with him. Yeah. Cam said the guy, the guy was so, and, and, and I don't know if you guys realize this, but Roy has passed on. He, yeah. uh, he died on a, a sheep hunt and, um, and Roy was, uh, an incredible individual. We, it, the industry lost a, a, a amazing man when he passed away. And again, I don't know him that well and stuff. I just knew him through, uh, Cameron's relationship and the talks that we had. And I met him a couple of times, but it's just interesting that you would say, okay, you look at a Cameron Haynes and the physical nature of what Cam was, the long distance running, and then he got into the, the bodybuilding and then, uh, you know, whatever. And then you look at Roy and totally two different body types. And you would think Cameron's the guy that's going to go, 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 go. Roy's the one that you're going to, pro- he's probably going to be hurting. And it was, and Cam, for the way he would put it was that it was Roy that Cam tried to keep up with. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be this guy that that hits the gym. But if you don't hit the gym and you're going to come out west, you better be emotionally and mentally just a freaking Just a beast. rock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. Because you know what? You can rest when you're done. <laughs> That's right. You can, you, you can go into town and get a burger. Oh, and, that's and the best. That's the best. Up, right? <laughs> right. I know. And there's not a burger that tastes better than after you've been, <laughs> uh, you know, on the mountain for a yep. couple of days or whatever. 100% truth, man. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. So I know we've kept you a while. Um, I kind of wanted to just... talk about this all day. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll try not to, but, uh, but I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of interested in the. Uh, so, you know, we talked about like, how do you approach this, the stalk? Then we talked about the last hundred yards. Well, what about the moment of truth? What, what are some tips you can give us? I noticed, uh, during one of your videos, you sent us, you, one of your limbs hit your leg, maybe your knee, you know, what are, what are some thoughts about the shot and pulling that off correctly and being successful in that moment? Um, I, I, I would honestly say uh, practice. Practice. Now, how do you practice all these different situations? Well, you're not you're, you, number one, you're not going to have the adrenaline. You're not going to have the heart beat, the, the, the out-of-breathness perhaps that would happen in that moment. So how do you practice that? Well, go to thealphabowhunter.com. Okay, my buddy Phil Mendoza started a program that talks through the importance of understanding your limitations. We in, an, in the bow hunting community talks or, talk about our effective range all the time. And would you guys agree with me that in, in, in general, we use our effective range is a place where we can go to where we can hit, let's just say, a pie plate five arrows and five arrows at that distance, you know, on a calm day. Mm-hmm. Would you, I mean, for years I did it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm dropping bombs at 120 yards. Oh, that's my effective range? No, because I also realized my, my KE was dropping so much, it's not my effective range. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, your effective range has nothing to do with whether on a calm day, uh, you know, at the range you can drop in 80-yard bombs and you, your group is within a pipe plate. Mm-hmm. Um, your effective range is what can you do, and I'm not going to go into this, but there's all these steps to self-govern and to self-test, and I think that's the key to realistically test yourself at what your range is. But you have to be true and honest to yourself that conditions change, mm-hmm. i.e., Dave's nine yards. There's a 40-mile-per-hour wind. What's his effective range? Well, it wouldn't be 40. I guarantee you what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at 40 yards, it, how far would that arrow drift? Mm-hmm. Heck, I don't even know because I've never shot in 40-yard uh, conditions because it sucks to practice in that, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But we know at nine yards you can get away with it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the key. Now, the alpha bull hunting is also a competition where it's a, it's a shooting competition mixed in with some uh, physical. Uh, you can go to YouTube to uh, to the alpha bull hunting and watch some of the competitions. And what you do is you you shoot a three D course, but then you you get ranked and you shoot against another person on a five range target that's back to back. But you're trying to shoot different distances on different 3D targets, but it's a shotgun clay pigeon. Huh. So if uh. you if you if you bust the clay pigeon, it's no addition to your time. If you hit in the eight, it's a 20 second penalty. If you hit in the five or miss the target, it's a 40 second penalty. And it's so it's a race, but it's also you're rewarded for accuracy. And what that does, and I'm not going to get into all the details. You guys can go check it out on YouTube. And um, and the you know Facebook stuff uh, for alphabowhunting.com or alpha bow hunter and uh, not alpha it's alpha yeah it's alpha bow hunting um, and alpha uh, on YouTube and on Facebook they have a website too check it out um, but what you're doing is what happens in a situation let's say you're 20 yards from that bedded buck and um, in a high country western hunt maybe you had to c- climb a ridge and you're out of breath. But now your adrenaline is is spiked, right? So we're putting ourselves in a condition where we're a little out of breath because we have to carry these sandbags and drag this sled and do a couple of small. It's not a freaking CrossFit competition, guys. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not like train to hunt. Train to hunt is a really hardcore kind of CrossFit meets bow hunting, which I think is a great thing. And I used to do it all the time. I love. I love the competition. It's really hard on my knees to pack out they do a, a race kind of with a, a meat pack and and i just can't do it my knees are just too bad mm-hmm. to, to go and race with 80 pounds on my back mm-hmm. so um but it puts you in that exact position where you have to make an 18 yard shot you have to make a 22 yard shot you have to and the whole time you're you're elevated your heart is getting elevated and your adrenaline is a spike why because you're competing against another guy over there Right. Mm-hmm. It's the only only way I've ever been able to put myself close to that exact same moment before I make that shot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so with the combination of all of this, I'm I'm testing myself, and then I know under these conditions what my limitations are. The bottom line is you don't know how you're going to react till you get there, and the killers are going to kill, and the uh, the guys that aren't just don't they don't have it and not that they can't get it but they don't have it at that they can't keep themselves composed they're gonna they're gonna miss 
And you know what? I do it all the time. I, and I show it on video, and people laugh at me because I miss. That's just part of the game, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's called hunting, not killing. Yeah. That's why we do it. I'm in there 22 yards. I can, I mean, not even that much wind, and, and I shoot, and I miss, and I shoot into a bank at 20, 22 yards. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but yeah. you know what? That happens. Then I go and redeem myself. But it—that's—that's it, that's why it's hunting. So you have to put yourself there. You have to practice. What? Let me ask you this, right off the top of your head. What pin do you shoot at at, at one and a half yards? <laughs> like four, five, <laughs> the forty or fifty yard pin. I don't know. It's that's tough. If it's from Every a tree stand, different. I'm shooting yeah. my thirty. <laughs> Every bow's different, yeah. right? But you can figure that out through a couple different things. I mean, for me, at one yard, I shoot 71 yards Yeah, mm-hmm. for my setup. At two yards, I'm shooting 50. You know, at three. And, and I have, why? Because I freaking went out and did it. Mm-hmm. Because I expect if I'm in a cliff and I get above a, a bedded buck and I'm, I might be 15 yards from him, but he's below me, and literally one yard is what I shoot it for. Mm-hmm. I need to know what pin I need to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Um, because, And I won't get into elevation shooting. Well, okay, I will. Go back to the Pythagorean theory. A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what we're looking at is we're looking at not the, the true line of sight distance. We're looking from the distance from straight below you to the animal. Mm-hmm. That's the distance we're shooting for. These angle compensa- these angle compensator slash uh, rangefinder deals are are close. They're not exact. They don't. They're not right. Uh, you'll notice that if you take your, uh, I have a loophole and I I have it on my angle compensator and I'm shooting a 3D shoot in the in the in the mountains, and I'm you know it's a 45 degree angle and I check it and it tells me to shoot for 62 yards, um, and I shoot over its back. Mm-hmm. You know. It's 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 close, but it's not on. I mean, th- that shot's probably going to be closer to fifty-eight if you do the math, um, and you look at a cut chart. But again, I'm getting more technical. But this is the things you need to know. And if you can, t- the more variables you can take out of the equation, the more successful you'll be. Mm-hmm. Like variables, is he still there? Is that buck still bedded? Oh, I can look through my binoculars at my bino buddy. And he tells me the okay symbol. Guess what? I am all relaxed now, right? Mm -hmm, Because I know that buck's there. I can slow down. I'm taking out variables. He's at two yards. What am I going to shoot him for? It's like that turkey I shot in Kansas at two yards. I shot it at, I put my 50-yard pin right on its face. (laughs) Worked out pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, I feel like we could talk forever, but uh, I know we all probably need to get our day started. And I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, what, where would you send the listener that's interested in seeing some of your your footage or finding out more about you guys? Uh, follow us IG, okay, uh, Outback Outdoors, uh, Instagram. Um, we do have a Twitter account. I don't ever do anything on it because I just don't need another thing to do. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, face Facebook is still around, although Facebook is slowly. Peter now just because of the algorithms and the, the how they're clamping down on hunting footage. Um, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, no. You kidding. know, you can go to <clears throat> you can go to Vimeo, <clears throat> Outback Outdoors on Vimeo and watch some of our stuff. You know, the m- main thing is we're on the Sportsman's Channel. We we air third and fourth quarter 
uh, at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern on Fridays, our main airtime, and then we show three other three other off times. Um, and then uh, we're we'll be moving. Uh, uh, I, I believe we're on MOTV, which is the Outdoor Channel's uh, mobile thing. You have to get a subscription, so I'm not a, a big fan of that. Um, but I mean, if hey, if you if you if you're a, a outdoor maniac and you want to watch a lot of different stuff, that's that's a key because you've got a lot of content there. You can watch on my my outdoor TV, which is MOTV. Um, check us out there. And then uh, you might, you never know, there might be uh, some Amazon stuff coming up in, in the near future. I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> it might, that might be a possibility. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, the base, main thing is follow us on social media, <clears throat> interact with us. Uh, we, do, uh, we do our own podcast called Inspired Wild. And uh, we started that podcast to really complete the cycle of what we do, which is, of course, filming our adventures. But uh, we do podcasts on every hunt. So we're we're. You, let's say you went and watched uh, a show, and you're like, "Oh, that's great!" You could go and find the podcast or podcasts. You know, sometimes when we're there for four or five days, we'll do three or four podcasts, and you're going to get a glimpse into behind the scenes because you know, a TV shows twenty two minutes long. Mm-hmm. All right. And you know there's a lot of stuff that happened that gets cut out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that allows us to, to expand and really elaborate or, or maybe share some behind-the-scenes stories. So it kind of completes that cycle. Yeah. So check it out. Uh, Inspired Wild, iTunes, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, you know, I mean, you can find us. Uh, oh, it's hashtag Inspired Wild. Gotcha. Um, and sometimes you have to search hashtag Inspired Space Wild. I, yeah, you know. Get creative. You'll find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Young kids will find it for sure. <laughs> well, awesome, Trevin. I appreciate your time, man, and all the all the uh, information, man. I, I know that uh, uh, stalking is something that is kind of formidable for a lot of people, and so I appreciate your, your knowledge, your information, and even your inspiration for us to go do that. So anyway, until uh, we can get you back on this thing, I guess uh, good luck turkey hunting this year. Well, thanks, and you guys too, and um, stay in touch. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Let, feel free to reach out to me if if uh, you know if you guys have any questions, the listeners have any questions, anything more. I uh, a lot of what I have to share is is life experience. Uh, um, I, I promise you, I won't just make up stuff. Um, <laughs> if I don't know, I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, but some of it is just learning through trial and error. I mean, I, honestly. Um, your style might differ from mine. It doesn't make your style wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, so. That's cool. We can awesome. all learn from each other too, man, on that kind of stuff, you know, and just because something's my style and your style doesn't mean we can learn a little bit from each other and maybe it'll help us be a little bit more successful in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, just one thing, one thing I, I, I I'm going to, again, get back up on my soapbox for <laughs> this one brief thing. Let's go. Uh, it, it, here, what in the cornbread heck is the deal with us as a hunting community trashing each other? Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to use this for example. Um, I had a buddy. He shoots a buck and honestly had some ground, shrink- ground shrinkage on this buck. But he didn't post it. It was his first freaking deer with a bow. He didn't even post it on IG because he was so scared of what people would say about the size Mm. i am fed up with people these keyboard freaking cowboys that 
forget what it was like to shoot their first deer. Mm. Or you kill a spike bull, and, oh, why'd you kill a spike? And you know what, you morons? Um, <laughs> I, I Quit. Just quit. Yeah. Just stop. Let's, let's embrace everybody's success and be happy for whatever success people have instead of getting into this freaking junior high um, measuring contest. And I'm not, I'm not going to say what, it, what it's measuring, but you know <laughs> where we're, we're comparing inches of antler to the, the amount of adventure we have. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, let's embrace each other. Let's, let's support each other. This, this industry is, is divided because, well, let's just be honest. We're, we're failed humans and we, we, we live, uh, selfish lives. Um, so we, we're at, we kind of got a, a, a nature that's going to lead to that anyway. Jealousy creeps in, but let's get away with that. Let's get away from that, and let's just support each other. And let's when a guy posts his uh, his Jake that he killed, let's not have our first response. Why didn't you wait for a Tom? Mm. Let's 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 jump on them and let's encourage these people and and let's recruit. We're losing more people every day that are dying from natural causes than we're recruiting into the hunting industry. And if this trend continues, you understand that 94% of the population makes the decision for the six of us that are outdoors, 6% of us that are outdoorsmen, mm. 94%. If we keep cannibalizing ourselves, we're going to lose the rights that we have. Yep. Okay. Uh, hey. Enough about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> That's no, a great it's, message, dude. It is, man. We, I've, uh, I've said it, you know, I had um, a stint in the music industry and uh, it was a similar thing, you know, and I, and I appreciated your comments about Western music, um, and, and also about how, um, you listen to something enough, you can find good things in it, you know, and I think that's the same thing. It kind of translates to people. If you are around somebody long enough, um, there are good things about most people. So let's, you know, let's look for those things instead of look for the bad in them and try to lift a brother up. You know what I mean? I like Amen what you're saying. That. I like what you're saying. Well, cool, man. We're going to hop off the phone, and uh, we will be in touch, I'm sure, man. We will probably be, um, at, at least if nothing else, in November next year, bombarding you with questions about <laughs> how to use a decoy correctly on a stock. So. You got it, man. <laughs> Feel free, and, and you guys, thanks for, for, thanks for the conversation, and God bless. Sure thing. Back at you. We'll see you, Trevin. All right. See you, bud. Man, I definitely had more questions, I think, but like... Just he's just so full of information, and we got so much out of him. It's like, how much, you know, how much time are you asking from yeah, somebody? Yeah, for you know? sure, man. But that was awesome, man. I, I uh, hope to go back and listen to this around late October next year in preparation for some of our ground game during the rut mm. this year. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, this is an awesome deal. We're gonna link to some of his videos or films in the uh, show notes here, uh, as well as our turkey film. Um, which has released, so make sure and go watch that. Let us know what you think. I do know the last turkey that you shot was pretty epic footage. Oh, so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very proud of that and the effort we put in uh, to, to go the extra mile there with that, that footage. But uh, anyway, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode um, and that you were able to glean some information from it. It is um, something that uh, whitetail hunters don't, uh, attempt a whole lot uh, but it is fascinating and it's something that maybe we could start using so anyway with that said god bless you guys and remember this is your element living it
Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E.com. And use the code COUNTRY. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to Land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.